0: But hamartiology. So, consequences of sin. Looking at this, let's kind of review where we've been. We've talked through um, a lot. The origin of sin. Where did it come from? We talked about free will. That God created us with free will, the option of choosing um, our own actions, and that that was then the free will and the angels, namely Satan, who led the fall um, of the angels into sin. And then free will in Adam and Eve, and subsequently in us. That's why there's sin in the world. Um, and God did not create evil. Instead, he created the potential of evil. But then also he um, designed the solution to evil. So we talked through that. Then we talked through, we tried to just give somewhat of a definition of sin, although there's, it's multifaceted. Essentially, um, a simple definition of anything that we think, say, or do that disobeys God, that displeases God, that breaks his law, etc. We talked about how there's such a thing as a sin of commission, something we do actively against God, but there's also sins of omission, things that we don't do that God has told us to do. Um, then we talked about the extent of sin. That's been We've had several weeks on that, um, especially looking at Romans chapter 5 of how it has affected us Not just that we choose sin, but also that our entire being, our minds, our hearts, our souls are tainted by sin. That we're corrupt and that we have natural sinful inclinations, unfortunately. So we talked about that, the effect of Adam's sin on us. And then we're trying to finish out with the consequences of sin. How does it affect me? And the solution to sin, how do I get rid of it? So consequences of sin, remember there's, we've been kind of thinking through this in the context of Romans 5, so let's go over there. Romans chapter 5, we'll start there. We've talked about three, uh, categories isn't quite the right word, Um, three, I don't know, three aspects maybe of how sin affects us, for lack of a better way to say it. There's imputed sin, which is um, the sin of Adam that Romans 5 talks about in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's some aspect in which the sin of Adam affects us directly. In other words, that's why it says at the end, for that all sinned. Um, And the the primary consequence of imputed sin, in other words, that in Adam we all sinned, is physical death. So we see that. That was what God said would happen if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is what has happened, that every subsequent generation has died, just as God said. So physical death, even apart from personal sin. Some people die prior to the ability to choose. Think of a baby. If they pass, they haven't made an act they haven't chosen to rebel against God. They're not yet capable of it, and yet physical death—they're still subject to it as well. So we see that, unfortunately, Adam's sin affects us in that way. But then inherited sin—that's the the aspect of it's corrupted our being that it's been passed down generation to generation. So on the back side of your sheet, we've got this table that maybe will be helpful. Um, it talks about this transmission column, the, um, the second column of the table. Imputed sin is directly from Adam to me. Everyone is subject to death. But then there's also the transmission from generation to generation of inherited sin. That because my parents were sinners, I also am a sinner and I've been corrupted. I struggle. Sin is a part of the fabric of my being. That's the idea of inherited sin. It's our struggle with right versus wrong. Um... And the primary penalty of inherited sin is alienation from God. So that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins, um, in which we once walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then at the end of verse 3 he calls us, we were children of wrath just as the others. That's what happens because of sin, is that every individual is born... Alienated from God. We're his enemies, not his friends by birth. We're not his children by birth. Instead, we're an enemy. You see that in Romans chapter 5, actually just before where we were, um, verse 6 For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, somewhat even dare to die. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, and then verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there's this aspect of um, what Paul is saying. Not many people actually want to give their life up um, as a substitute for someone else, even if they're a really, really good person, a righteous person. Maybe if they're just a good person, somebody might be willing but God, he loved us so much that while we were sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. So that's inherited sin is we're enemies of God. And our, our natural soul's bent is against God because of sin. But we also talked about how we still retain the image of God. And so there's also this aspect where um, un, un, or lost sinners still sometimes do good. And that's the image of God in man, is that we still do good sometimes, even though we're sinners, because we're made in God's image. And then personal sin. Um, We're really familiar with this one, because it's personal. So Romans 3 talks through that. There's none righteous, no, not one. None that seeks after God. None that understands. Talks about how all have sinned. We're all as an unclean thing. Um, And I put in there... We've sinned both overtly, our actions, as well as covertly, our attitudes. If I commit a sin, an action against God, or I say something I shouldn't, you all get to see that. But there's also sin that's covert, it's hidden, it's secret, it's in my heart. I might have a rotten attitude, but put a smile on my face and you think everything's fine, because you can't see my heart. And those sins are just as wicked as the sins that we commit. That we commit outwardly, overtly. Yeah. So personal sin, but then we talked about, so consequences of sin, imputed sin, that's the table, imputed sin, that's uh, physical death, inherited sin, that's spiritual death or alienation from God. But then personal sin, the result of personal sin, is loss of fellowship or lack of fellowship. Because someone who is lost in their sin prior to salvation, they'd never got. Fellowship with God to begin with because they were born alienated. But then let's go over to 1 John chapter 1 for a minute. Does anyone remember three weeks ago whether we looked at 1 John 1? Did we? Thanks, Ashley. We have? Okay. Good. Three weeks ago. Like, yeah. Amen. Three weeks ago feels like three years ago right now. Two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> man, it does feel a long time ago. It's yeah. hilarious. Um, but First John one, um, John is describing. He starts out the book, talks about he's he's wanting to communicate about the Word of Life, and he says, "I'm an eyewitness. My hands have touched Him. I've heard Him speak." He was manifest. Um, so now I'm telling you about it. And then verse 3, 1 John 1, 3, he says, That which we've seen and heard, speaking of Christ, the word of life, we declare unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John shares as the principle, he says, Jesus Christ, the goal of why I'm sharing this with you is so that you can have Fellowship. With us, and then with God the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. So the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ paid for our sins, that he rose from the dead, carries with it the, the opportunity of fellowship. How would you define fellowship? We talk about fellowship a lot, but... Do we understand Surrounding it? Surrounding yourself with other believers worshiping God. I like that. Surrounding yourself with other believers worshiping God. It's good. How else? What would you add, subtract? Well, my Bible says. Oh, no! I thought it was meaning the definition. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, acceptance is absolutely part of it. It's good. Tim? common ground cooperation, you know Mm -hmm. talks about in Philippians a couple times about fellowship, about how we work towards the same goal. Even though Mm -hmm. like in Ephesians it says that we are different people, but you gotta broken down that middle wall to make us to not strive against each other but strive together for the for of the gospel. Mm-hmm. We're working together. It's good. Yeah, working together. Yeah. yeah. Common ground. That's kind of the base idea of the Word Fellowship. It's just commonness, it's sharing. Sir. Mom always used to say it's just all the fellows in the ship. <laughs> it's all the fellows in the ship. There you go. I and mean, you like in a family, you are you have to be. Mhm. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, because sometimes we might say like a potluck is fellowship. And a potluck can be fellowship, but it's not inherently fellowship. Because it's not just getting together. Because you can do that anywhere. You know, people get together to watch the football game on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday night. People get together to go hunting. People get together to play bingo. And they, they have fellowship, but not the fellowship John is talking about. That's fellowship around bingo or hunting or football. They share football, bingo, hunting in common. But then the common grounds that we have in the church as believers in Jesus Christ is we share fellowship with God. We have Christ in common. And so no matter if we have all the differences in the world, every aspect of our life is completely different. You like football, I prefer baseball. You like hunting, well, I like hunting too, but... (laughs) Somebody doesn't like hunting, and you like hunting, or you name it. No matter the differences that we have, if you're both believers in Jesus Christ, there is common ground because of Christ. And so then fellowship is this commonness that we share because of Jesus. So to make a potluck fellowship, it's not just talking about the weather or football or all of that, but it's sharing life. It's, hey, how was your week? How are you doing? What's God teaching you? What is one of God's blessings this week? It's encouraging one another. But So if you go through the New Testament, there's dozens of one another commands, they're called, like encourage one another, comfort one another, edify one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those, if you go through, comb through, and gather the one another's or Google a list of the one another's, that's what fellowship is. Is it sharing life because of Christ and helping one another on that path? So John says, that's the goal, but the result of personal sin, um, verse five, this then is the message which we've heard of him and declare to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So the result is, We say, hey, I have fellowship, but I'm actually walking in darkness, a metaphor for living in sin, living contrary to what God has said. Well, if God is light and we're walking in darkness, somebody's lying and it's not God. But verse seven, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Obviously, if we have fellowship with God by walking in the light, but then that gives us fellowship with one another. Um, But then verse 9. Well, we we better come back to verse 9. It relates to the next of solution. So, participation in darkness removes us from the fellowship with God. It removes us from the light of God. Um, If one has committed personal sins, which once we come of age of being able to make our own decisions, each of us has sinned. Once someone has committed personal sin, this is the middle of the paragraph, the eventual consequence for unatoned personal sin, in other words, the sacrifice of Christ has not been applied because one has rejected it, not accepted it by faith, the eventual consequence is condemnation. Romans talks quite a bit about that. Romans 1:18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in the lake of fire. That's Revelation 21.8. Um, that all it works through a whole list, liars being one of them, will have their part in the lake of fire. So we understand that, we see that, um, but for the believer, you can look through those references on your own time if you want. The consequence for the believer is severed fellowship that may result in things like hindered prayers. Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Uh, lack of assurance, Second Peter 1 describes the one who is not growing and adding to their faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, etc., they sometimes may become so nearsighted that they forget that they've been cleansed from their former sins. Um, Loss of future reward. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Everything's going to burn in the end, but the wood, hay, and stubble is going to be consumed. The gold, silver, precious stones, in other words, a metaphor for the good that we've done in our life for the glory of God, that's what lasts through the judgment. But then if we have wood, hay, and stubble, there's loss of reward. Um, living in sin may result in fatherly discipline. That's Hebrews 12. The Lord chastens whom he loves. And then eventually it can eventuate in an untimely death. And I remember we talked about that. I do remember that part. End of James, end of 1 John. That's important, especially when we have someone from the family of God that we know we're watching them live in sin. We We have a responsibility, according to 1 John, according to James, according to Galatians 6, according to Matthew 7, Matthew 18. We should go to them and lovingly confront them on their sin, humbly, lest we also be tempted, so that we can help preserve them from that death or the potential of it. Boom. There was our review. But I feel like if we don't review... It's hard to go to the solutions because it's all so intertwined. Any comments there on consequences or thoughts or what's churning in the chambers of your mind? Pretty slow this morning. <laughs> My <chambers>. Fair enough. <laughs> well, then, should we go to solutions? Yeah. <laughs> So the question is, how do I get rid of it? How do we get rid of sin? Um, but I think one of the challenges when we think about how do we get rid of sin is it's kind of like, have you ever stained something white and no matter how hard you try, it's unremovable? Mm-hmm. What? Just, just tie-dye Just tie Ah, <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> My mother-in-law. Tie-dye my mother-in-law has a beautiful white rug, and I spilled a little bit of orange drink on it. And I don't think it's all quite going to come out. So I'll suggest tie-dye to her. I'll, I'll help with the tie-dye. Right. Orange tie-dye sure She has a white rug. She's probably. I do not want tie-dye. Yeah. I think you're right. There's a reason it's white. Oh, that's so you funny. Diminish it or cover it. No. Yeah, we tend to diminish sin, cover it. But the question is, who does sin hurt? Because our relationship with God can be restored, and the, the blot of sin that's like crimson can be restored white as snow through the blood of Christ. But sin does not just hurt our relationship with God. So, maybe we should look up some scripture now. Let's go. Who wants to go and read 1 Corinthians 8.12? Anybody? I can. Okay. So, 1 Corinthians 8, 12. Oh, I found it. It It's like 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Don't know anything. Sorry, guys. I'm not going to get my Bible. You're good. Oh, dang it. There you go. Maybe I should have done this because I'm still at this. We're not in a hurry. Good. Okay, First Corinthians 8, 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So the context here is Paul is talking about meat that's been offered to idols and there was a large debate in the early church, especially in Corinth, of whether they could eat meat that had previously been offered to idols. And realizing the cultural significance of that, there was very little meat available that had not been offered to idols. So sometimes to say, I'm not going to eat meat offered to idols, might be saying, I'm not going to eat meat. So there was this debate, and Paul basically, to summarize his answer, he says, if you know that it's been offered to idols, and they offered it to you, say no, so that you don't offend their conscience, so that you don't harm them and make them think idol worship's okay. But if you don't know that it's been offered to idols, you can, in a good conscience, eat of it. But if then they say it, then you say, no, thank you. So you follow that argument? So what Paul then is saying in verse 12 is, when we sin against another brother by defrauding his or her conscience, in other words, they have something that in their conscience may or may not be explicitly stated in Scripture, but they, in their conscience, think, that's wrong for me. Well, then we, out of Christian love, um i lost the word we also refrain ourselves in order not to lead them into sin because scripture talks about that whatever's not of faith is sin in the same context in other words if you can't in good conscience partake or do it don't do it one pastor friend he'll often say if it's doubtful it's dirty if it's doubtful it's dirty i kind of like that that's helpful but the point is, sometimes we sin against a Christian brother; we wound their weak conscience, but it also then is sin against Christ. Um, we've got lots of scripture. Let's go to Matthew five now. <clears throat> Matthew five twenty three. So Matthew 5.23 gives us some interesting instruction. It's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished the Beatitudes not too long before. Now he's describing, um, he's describing, hey, you've heard it said of old time, you shall not kill. Um, otherwise you'll face judgment. But then he says, whoever's angry with his brother without cause. And whoever says to his brother, in other words, hatred and anger are the heart equivalent of the action of murder. So he says, that's just as dangerous. But then we get down, verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, you're coming to worship God, and there you remember that your brother has ought against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's really interesting. Now, we don't go to the altar, but maybe think of the context of you come to church, and you show up to worship God. Or you sit down to read your Bible or to pray, and you remember, I sinned against that person. They have something against me. Jesus says, drop your gift right there. Stop praying. Call them. You know, before church starts, go up to him. Whatever it is, he says, be reconciled to your brother. Then bring your gift. So one other thought I wanted to throw in here, it, it applies. Let's go over, let's go, there's so many passages we could do for it. Let's do Colossians, because pastor will preach through Ephesians. Let's go with Colossians 3. We want to talk about the idea of forbearance. Forbearance. Does anybody have a tidy definition of forbearance? How would you define that? Sorry? Patience. Patience. Yeah. Because we understand the concept that we as Christians have a responsibility to forgive. As the most forgiven people in the world, we also ought then to be the most forgiving. And Paul, that's his application in both Colossians and in Ephesians. Look at the end of verse Colossians 3.13. He says, Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye, in Ephesians four thirty two, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So we know we have a responsibility to to forgive when we've been sinned against, but we also have a responsibility to forbear. And forbearance is similar to forgiveness, but it's different. So let's read this um, Colossians three. Uh, just look at start. We'll start in verse twelve. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy. That's compassion from the deepest part of your soul. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So the, the idea of forbearance is patience long-suffering. It's putting up with one another, bearing with one another. So the idea of forbearance is pretty practical because sometimes people's personality or things they do the way they are might rub you the wrong way. I have that. I assume you have that. It's kind of part of being human. Um, But the question is, is that action, that attitude that you observe, is it scripturally sinful in other words does scripture prohibit it or command that they do the opposite if not that's where forbearance comes in because if it is sinful then there's forgiveness we release that sin they can come and say i was wrong please forgive me but if it's not sinful forbearance is important we put up with one another we bear along with one another does not 14 indicate it has to be done in love mhm Bears. Yeah, you He's might. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be done in love. It's good, Siri. I was thinking it's, it's giving the other person weight and, mm. and you know value, kind of honoring the other person, yeah. not just putting up with them. It's, good. it's Giving their them value, seeing them the way God sees them, their value when you're working with them. It's good. Yeah, because that aspect of their personality is not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. So say you have a friend, and you get a fight, and then you guys forgive each other, mm-hmm. but yet now you don't want to be close friends anymore. that still forgiveness, but you're just choosing not to put yourself in that situation again. But is that not true forgiveness? Good question. So <laughs> yes. there are times, absolutely, a friend that there's been... Um, that there's history, there are times it's totally okay not to be as close a friend as you once were. Sometimes forgiveness um, is difficult to wrap our minds around. So forgiveness is a promise. It's not that I feel all better about the situation. Instead, forgiveness is a promise. I promise not to bring your sin up to anyone, up to God, up to myself, up to someone else. So God would be, God, hey, just strike them dead. Up to myself would be to just stew on it in bitterness. Up to someone else would be slander or gossip. Um, forgiveness is a promise. Now, it's a promise not to bring it up to anyone who's not part of the solution. So maybe there's sin, it, there needs outside help. Well, you can go and get outside help, and you're not breaking the promise of forgiveness because they're part of the solution. Yeah, does that help? Yeah, because I was really wondering that. You don't be friends with that person because they like you guys had a falling out, but yet you still to mm-hmm. forgive them. Is that forgiveness <laughs> that you still want to be friends? With? A good way to think about it is if you show up at the store and you see them at the end of the aisle, do you choose the other aisle because they're at the end of the aisle? If so, it's probably not true forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? That's, good. That's what I remind myself. Or if I see their car in the parking lot and I drive to a different store, I probably didn't forgive them. Mm -hmm. Well, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to trust them or your heart's not guarded. That's right. You know, that's perfectly beautiful. Exactly. That's good. Ashley? So often we think, well, I don't want to be in community with that person anymore, but Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be that person anymore. But we have to be prayerful in what God wants Mm -hmm. instead of what we want in that situation. That's good. No, and then God just bring that person into life. Like, hey, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and it's amazing I was what, that, I yeah. Like, right. <laughs> like, like, yeah. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good, cause it's amazing what God can do. We might say, "I don't want to be close to that person anymore," and then God can do that. God can bring. Total healing and restoration, and it can be better than before even. But that's the power of the gospel. It's good. Okay, so there's sin against oneself. That's First 1 Corinthians 6 with um, sin of sexual immorality. Um, there's physical harm that sin does to us. When we choose sin over and over, it actually affects us. Our brains, um, our habits, our soul... There's sin against God, Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned, David says. That's his prayer of confession after the sin, um, his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband. And then sin against God's spirit, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So there's a, when we sin, it grieves God's spirit because he dwells in us. He has to live here. And when we pollute his temple with sin, it brings sadness to his heart. So the reason to say who does sin hurt is just to say it's not just we need reconciliation with God, but there's also at times horizontal reconciliation that needs to occur in order for sin to be dealt with. But thinking through, let's go back to to Romans 5. Actually, we've read that several times. Let's go 2 Corinthians 5 this time. 2 Corinthians 5. So... What is the solution to imputed sin? Remember the guilt as sinners in Adam, physical death being the, the primary consequence here. What's the solution to that sin? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse, we'll start in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's kind of cool. We're ambassadors for God to spread his reconciliatory. Is that a word? Conciliatory is. Reconciliatory. Go with it. We're his ambassadors of reconciliation. We bring peace because God's a God of peace. Um, Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. It's the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. In other words, I'm bringing God's message. God says, be reconciled to me. Why? Verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin, but God made him sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the solution to imputed sin is Jesus took it at the cross. And so then we have available to us the righteousness of Christ that can be imputed to us. That is the solution, that though we may die physically, yet shall we live in eternity. So that's imputed sin. Then we look at inherited sin. And just stop me in here. I'm just going to keep going unless you stop me, okay? So inherited sin, this is that corruption, the depravity, our sin nature, our own struggle with sin. The way that Paul said it was Hey, I, the good that I do want to do, I don't do. And the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I do. He's like, what is wrong with me? And that's the sinful human condition. We all have that struggle. I mean, if the Apostle Paul had it, of course we do. So that's inherited sin. So there's three stages, three stages of the solution. Number one is Salvation. Um, we need the new birth, regeneration, that we be made new. That was First, Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. So it's salvation. Jesus described it as the new birth in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. At the new birth, the Holy Spirit renews our soul. That's Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Um, by the renewal... Oh, where'd it go? Well, let's get it. Titus 3, 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So it's the Holy Spirit now indwells us, and he actually makes us new from the inside out. That's salvation. We're a new creature. But then he continues that work. We were set free from the power and the bondage or slavery to sin at salvation. That's Romans 6 and Galatians 5. But now it's sanctification. God is continuing to make us new, to help us be the people that he's already made us in Christ. So that's Galatians 5, 16 to 23. Remember the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit. Um, He says, walk in the spirit so you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's Romans 8. The entire chapter is just about the spirit and his work in us, where he helps us begin to desire the things that we ought to desire. Um, But he's doing it with every aspect of our being. So Romans 12.2, he says, Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's renewing our minds. What do you think is the primary agent of renewal for our minds? In other words, what does God use to make us think differently? The truth of the scripture. Okay, so he's renewing our minds. He's also renewing our hearts. Um, our emotion our heart jeremiah seventeen nine talks about the heart is deceitful desperately wicked who can know it that's romans 6 7 8 god is helping us begin to want what is right instead of what is wrong he's renewing our heart our volition um romans 7 19 to 20 paul talks about that and our bodies one day when we die physically we receive the new body the glorified body but that's number three so there's the three stages. Salvation, we're now in sanctification, but one day there's glorification. Um, 1 John 3 2 says that when we see him, when we see Christ, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, and he who has this hope purifies himself with, because he has the hope. So there's a future anticipation of God's making all things new where no more sin lives in us. And we're, we're no longer longing for sin. Okay, then personal sin. The solution to personal sin is initial forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 um, talks about we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. So we need forgiveness at salvation. But then we were in 1 John. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, agreeing with God that our sin was sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment cleansing we need. Sometimes people refer to it as keeping a short sin account. So it's like if, if we were capable of it, to have a notebook that we just write down every time we sin, well, every time you sin, go to God in your soul and confess it. God, I was wrong when I did that, when I said that. Please forgive me. And then there's cleansing and restored fellowship with God. But if we go through the day and we don't confess our sin and our notebook gets longer and longer, and then the next day, that's what they mean when they say keeping short sin accounts, is wipe the record clean. Go and receive the cleansing of Christ's blood. Um, So then we already talked through all that. I duplicated it of the effects of severed fellowship, of hindered prayer, Fatherly chastisement, etc. <coughs> so then there's just a quote that I thought was helpful Helpful from that um, theologian Charles Ryrie that uh, the chart is from. He says, Judicial forgiveness brings the unbeliever into the family of God. That's salvation. Judicial forgiveness. We're no longer condemned. But then he says, While family forgiveness restores the temporarily broken relationship within the family. And we understand that in our own familial relationships. When a son sins against a father, the father doesn't kick him out of the house and say, you're no longer my son. Instead, there's sadness for the father. He may have a broken heart. They may be frustrated with each other. There's tension. But then when the son humbles himself and comes and says, dad, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I want to obey. Well, now there's restored familial fellowship but you don't kick him out of the house. God does the same thing. He doesn't kick us out of the family of God and say you're no longer my child because you made a mistake. Instead, that was solved at the cross and when we received it by faith and salvation. Judicial forgiveness. But then familial forgiveness is I as God's child sinned, but then God welcomes me back into fellowship when I humble myself through confession. What do you think? What should we discuss more? We have more thoughts or are the the cerebral chambers churning slowly? There's something about winter when it gets dark so early and then when it stays dark so late into the morning. It's like, I just. Yeah. By about noon, I'm kind of ready to start thinking. Yeah. Until then, I'd rather be cozied by the fire. What? It's just so yeah, cold that exactly. it's like you don't want to go get more cold. <laughs> Any other thoughts on it? So what we'll do next week, Lord willing, we will uh, we'll be starting soteriology, the study of salvation. So maybe this week your homework, if you think about it, just write down questions about salvation and all of that that is entailed with it and that's our goal is to do some work on soteriology in the next several weeks